Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zair Yunus and today we're going to be diving deep into crypto, blockchain, Web3. What's all the fuss about? Is this the end of the Web3 crypto era because we've had the Luna Terra collapse? Um, and, and, and to talk about all of this, I have with me a dear friend and a fellow expert, Salahuddin Faja. He's CEO of Hypermode, which is a consulting firm building Web3 teams and designs for clients. Um, he has worked on Wall Street, on at Bank of America, JP Morgan, so understands the U.S. financial system and the global financial system really well, um, and is, uh, I would say, uh, a passionate evangelist for the crypto Web3 revolution, and we'll talk to him about all of that. Um, but I want to start, Salah, uh, first by welcoming you to Pakistanomy. And then secondly, you would have seen, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I asked the question of the Pakistani finance minister about Web3 and he was like, I don't know what Web3 is. That went viral and people were talking about, oh, how does he not know? I think a lot of people don't know what Web3 is. So let's start first by having you explain to us what is the Web3 revolution that's ongoing? How does it fit into the broader internet economy? And then where does crypto, blockchain, all of that technical stuff fit into what is broadly known as Web3 today? Yeah, Zara, hey, so excited to be here um, and, and talk to you about a subject that I'm super passionate about. So to understand Web3, I think you got to go back and you got to understand Web1 and Web2 a little, and then you kind of get into blockchain and Web3. The Web1, uh, especially for the young people who are listening in, you know, in the 90s, it was Web1, right, where you were basically able to just read, get information from a website, you know, not even beautiful websites, very simple. Web2 is kind of the era that we've been living in over the last 10, 15 years. Think about how you can order an Uber. Think about how you can get your TV and entertainment via Netflix. Think about how you get your groceries. That's all Web2. So it's read and write. There's this interactivity that's happening in Web2. So now let's understand Web3. So Web3 is read, write, and own. And ownership is enabled by blockchain and tokenization. So as an example right now, when you think about Uber and all of these others, you don't really own any part of that. But with blockchain, all of these new applications that are being built, you, you, me, all of us can participate in owning all of this. And that's recalibrating everything that we look at because we looked at it from like, just like how Web2 recalibrated everything, right? You didn't need to go to a video store to go rent a, a, a movie. You just streamed it. Web3 is now recalibrating everything on top of the blockchain. So that's my simple explanation. Yeah, and I think that's a great explanation because if you look at the Web 1 to Web 2 transition in that space, right, Blockbuster went out of business, Netflix emerged, right? And through the Web 3, Web 2 to Web 3 revolution, certain things will happen where Web 2 companies will no longer be relevant. One personal example that I um, have been fascinated by, and it's not scaled up yet, right? But it's Audius, which is a Web3 music streaming platform yep. where all of a sudden a music artist uh, sitting in Nigeria can have direct access to an audience and earn directly the, the, the you know, minus a fee on the audience uh, platform, the revenues for their music and their talent versus today, Spotify or YouTube or SoundCloud will take a majority share of your music and then you need a record label to achieve scale. Audius is trying to, uh, trying to disrupt that, right? And if it scales up, it just fundamentally changes the relationship an artist, a music artist has with their audience around the world. I love that example. Audius is a hot project. It basically, exactly what you just said, right? It changes the balance between the content creator and the consumer. Right now you have all of these middlemen sitting, right? Whether the YouTube, SoundClouds, and they typically disproportionately take a slice of that um, transaction. So the whole point of Web3 and blockchain is that you can kind of get rid of middlemen and it can be all decentralized. And what does decentralized mean? That, hey, the, the, the artist and the consumer, so the artist who's creating the content and the consumer are getting more and more connected versus all of these layers in the middle. And I think that's gonna, it's like in a way, it's truly democratizing and spreading stuff. And it's, you know, letting the community do stuff versus the old way was, you know, top down, right? And those power structures are inverting around all of this right now. So then help, help us understand like where does crypto and blockchain fit into all of this, right? Because it's, it's, it's technical. A lot of this is technical. Uh, I always recommend to people who are interested in this, for example, that they should start by reading the white paper for Bitcoin, 
Um, that that's sort of you, if you haven't read it and you're interested in this space or claim to know something about this space and haven't read it, I think you need to go back and read and start from Bitcoin, right? Um, but you know, give a 101 on the blockchain crypto economy. Why is this so integral to Web3 and how does it even work? So, so two part answer, right? The first part is before you read the blockchain, the Bitcoin uh, uh, white paper, I would just go to YouTube and type in blockchain explained simply, crypto explained simply, watch five minute animated videos. That's the place to get the basic, basic information and then use that as a, as a, a launching pad. Then the part two answer is around how does blockchain fit into all of this? Um, let me take you back you know, in time on, on a journey, right? If you go back to um, when the first coin or token was invented. It was Mesopotamia 3,500 years ago, modern day Baghdad. And it was used for transactions, right? So that you could have a token and you could transact. Then why was writing invented? Writing was actually invented to maintain a ledger, to maintain a kata. So a transaction between a farmer who sells his wheat or her wheat to a merchant, to a baker, farmer, merchant, baker. This is all ledgers, all transactions that are happening. And that's why writing was invented. What did Medici's do? Medici's were the fathers, if you will, of modern day banking in Italy. And they basically said, hey, we'll maintain the ledger for you. So you trusted them with the money and then they would do the transactions. Credit, debit, credit, debit. Now you come to today in the last 30, 40 years, what is modern day banking? It's effectively that. It's a credit debit. Hey, this money's coming in, out, in money coming out. Whether it's your checking account, your um, credit card, your mortgages, your trading, it's all a matter of maintaining a ledger. Uh, an example near and dear to many of our hearts is the Patwari system. When it works, it works fine. But when it doesn't work, it's like suddenly somebody paid someone and hey, that land title just moved, right? So it's the ledger not working. And that's where digitizing things is usually an improvement, right? Before you'd have to call a taxi, now you hit a button and it's typically digitized, right? So the next step in that evolution from you know, Mesopotamia to Medici's, to our current monetary system is, hey, if there is a tech that can maintain a ledger and you don't need anybody else. So just think of like a Bank of America or a MasterCard, right? You need them to do stuff. But what if I told you there was a tech that could do what they're doing? Forget about the black box, how it does it, you know, mining and cryptography and all of that stuff. Forget about all of that. Think black box. It maintains a ledger and it guarantees that the ledger is accurate. When I learned about that in 2014, I'm like, damn, this is game-changing tech. And you're cutting the middle people out of all of this. And now what's happening is that people are building more on it, right? So Bitcoin was the OG ledger, the original ledger. And now there's smart contracts and DeFi. And I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of that. But that's how the blockchain is kind of evolving in terms of you know, human innovation over the last 3,000 years. And that's fascinating, right? It's almost like, you know, just the Uber example, if, if you game it out from a user experience point of view, right? You call a taxi, the taxi driver comes out, um, you take your ride, you give him or her some cash, right? In the old economy, it would be that. Or if you, I remember my, my first trip to Boston when I moved for undergrad in 2007, um, and uh, using a credit card was a pain because they would swipe the card in this handheld machine and give you a receipt. And five days later, the card would be charged and you would say, okay, this is not the right amount, call the taxi service again, et cetera. Um, but all of that is adding inefficiencies to the process, right? Where you have credit cycles, 14 day payments, blah, blah, blah. And there's just friction in between, right? And real time sort of clearance of payments, like that's where I like UPI in India a lot because the unified payments interface allows you to have direct transactions to a Chaiwala, to a Buttawala, to your tailor, to anybody else. Um, and it's real time, immediate, and it clears, right? Um, which is amazing from a tech perspective. It just reduces friction and formalizes your economy through that. Um, you've talked about, and we've had this conversation a lot about exponentiality, right? and exponential growth. So in this tech that's coming up, like help situate things in terms of the exponential growth that we're seeing, um, particularly around the digital asset side. Um, and how does that factor into this innovation and investment that we're seeing in this space? I want to get back, uh, you know, after that into sort of the near-term volatility we're seeing, but let, let's start big picture and, and talk about exponentiality and how it fits into the space. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. It's a good question. I um. I have to kind of admit a shortcoming, even though I'm a classically trained computer scientist, I spent years on Wall Street 
understanding interest and compounding and percentages. But one thing that I didn't understand until like six months ago was how exponential growth can be unbelievably exponential. And the simple example um, I came across to really understand it is that, was there if I give you a piece of paper that's one millimeter thick, I ask you to double it. Then I ask you to double it again, double it. And I ask you to go 50 doubles. So how high does it go? It's one millimeter. Does it go this high? Does it go this high? Does it go this high? Does it go as high as me? The floor I'm in, the building I'm in in New York right now. And the answer to that is 50 folds takes you all the way to the sun. That's how massive exponentiality is. And once you get your arms around that concept that when things are increasing at 50% a year, at 100% a year, they grow massively. And once you get your arms around that concept, you can actually justify why software stock prices are valued the way they're valued. If you think about a traditional organization, that's kind of increasing at 2%, 3%, 5%, right? It's gated by all of the physical constraints that, you know, supply chain that, you know, we've talked about, right? To uh, labor, to electricity, Pakistan is facing massive challenges there. It's all gated. If you think about tech, tech doesn't have that gating and suddenly it goes exponential. And so if you think about what happened with the internet, right? I got access to email in 1994. I calculated I was 0.1% of the world. In 1994, 0.1% of the world. Over the next 10 years, from 1994 to 2004, let's call it the Gmail era, a billion people had access to email. So it 100xed. So it went from 10 million to a billion 100x. That same exponentiality is occurring in crypto today. And that's where people don't understand. We'll talk about the, the drops, but if you take a macro view, right? Crypto is growing 60, 70, 80% a year. More and more people are being brought into the net, just like the internet was, right? Where early 2000s, you know, your, your mom and dad likely didn't have access to the internet. And slowly more and more people do. Think of smartphone, right? Literally within six, seven years, anybody who's anybody in Pakistan even, right? Have a smartphone. Look at that widespread adoption. The same thing's happening with crypto. If you look at the trend lines. Um, and so it's not just you know, my enthusiasm for this amazing tech, the, the numbers behind it show this pattern. And we have about, you know, depending on who you kind of uh, listen to, we have 150 million crypto users, right? Plus or minus. Imagine that doubling to 300 million, doubling to 600, to 1.2 billion to 2.4. So there's like seven, eight turns left. We're really early in this. And then there's all sorts of innovation that's gonna come after people are brought into crypto. The smartphone had to be created before Uber came along, right? So all of there's so much innovation left, um, and the only thing you have to do is you gotta take the 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 micro lens out, the day to day. You know, stop watching Geo News and ARY and whatever, right? Even CNN, Fox, it doesn't matter. And you take a macro view, and you see this massive upward trajectory. I think the fascinating thing to me at a personal level in all of this is that um, you know the internet economy is borderless, right? Unless you want to be a China. Um, and, uh, you know, even China with, with its crypto mining ban, I think it's back to being the number two mining hub in the world because even the Chinese have realized it's not it's not worth it to stop. And it's very difficult to stop stop this whole momentum in terms of where things are going. So it, it's borderless. Um, and, and, and the thing that's even more exciting to me at that is that it's borderless in the sense that the total addressable market for digital assets of which crypto coins are one, just one element, right? A very narrow element if you take a big picture view of it. Um, that ownership can accrue to everybody from Timbuktu to Silicon Valley. And I think it's a great equalizer in that sense. It's a great equalizer on the talent side. And we'll get to that in just a bit in terms of, you know, how that impacts Pakistanis and, and talented Pakistanis who, who are taking, you know, getting away from ARY geotype stuff. Um, but you know, we are in this midst. The day we're recording, obviously, it's coming high on the heel, hot on the heels of the Terra Luna collapse. Um, you go on social media and all the naysayers are back out in action. Um, this is another crypto winter. Um, you are an early adopter in that sense that you've seen many more of these in the past. I've seen at least three or four of these crypto winters. Um, and we always come see, you know, the ecosystem come back strongly. Where are things today? And, and what is it that's causing this latest crypto winter where people are saying, you know, this is the end and let's move on from this? Yeah, this, this, I think this is the question that your audience wants to really hear more about here, right? Um, you know, first, let me cover Terra and what happened with Terra. It was, um, I was articulating this to a good friend of mine who works at Goldman, senior tech guy there. Like, this is great tech that went wrong. 
great potential algorithmically traded, right? And tech just went wrong. And tech does go wrong. If you, we, I'm, I'm a big techie, but I'm never gonna go all in on tech, right? You have to have a lot of human element, et cetera, and things will go wrong. Um, so if you draw a parallel with the 2008 crisis, right? In, in, in the US where there was the great recession as a result of a crisis in the housing financial market effectively, without getting into the crazy complexities of that, there was this contagion, a systemic risk that happened. And it was a great product that had a risk that wasn't mitigated. And so coming out of that 2008 crisis, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, um, FDIC, CFTC, a bunch of regulatory bodies put something called the heightened standard a regulation that banks had to follow to be better. And guess what? Since 2008, 14 years later, have you seen another housing crisis, another issue on Wall Street? No. So humans are incentivized to do bad and things do go wrong. That's just the nature of human. How many railroad accidents happen when the railroads roll up? So that is going to happen. I, to what I know so far, Luna doesn't seem like a nefarious action, but for sure there are many nefarious activities going on in the space. Okay. And you're going to have good tech that with great potential that goes wrong. But that's just part of the learning exercise. Um, so a so couple of more thoughts there. Um, draw the parallel with when Lehman Brothers collapsed, right? It was a $40 billion event. It, it was systemic risk. Over here, Luna went down, nothing happened, right? Yes, the markets kind of shuttered like the crypto markets, but more or less it was contained. So that's huge, right? Just think about it for an industry that's not even 10 years old, right? To sustain this kind of body blow. And just to situate that, you mentioned Lehman Brothers, and, and I think many audience members may not remember, but I remember in undergrad standing in front of a television screen, like when Lehman collapsed, people taking out their computers and everything out of the offices, and that was the end of the world at that point, right? Like, oh my God, what's happening? And you're right. So we haven't had those scenes in, in a major collapse. You know, this is a seismic event that happened in the crypto world, but you know, the system and the markets keep, kept going along. You, that's exactly it. Um, you know, I, I spent some time in Lehman Brothers before 2008. So I've seen the organization, some great people there, but it, they adopted a product and they massively levered up and these things went wrong. Right. And um, I think the other parallel that I was recently drawing and got to give credit to the Solana co-founder Raj, um, and he made me think about this, which is if you think about like how telecom was rolled out, you had 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, and now we're in the 5G era. For people in New York in the 2009-10 timeframe, 3G was rolled out. 3G had massive issues. AT&T had massive issues where people couldn't even connect to the 3G network. So guess what? When Solana goes down or Luna collapses and has issues, it's okay. It's, you know, think of again, the macro view, right? That we talk about, you can get stuck with, oh, Luna collapsed or Lehman Brothers collapsed. So I'm never gonna invest again, or I'm never gonna give this promising tech a chance, but guess what? AT&T is still around, right? So I've even changed the frame of my thinking. I wasn't a big Solana fan. I think they have great tech, but because of their outages, I was like, nah, but guess what? 99% of the time when Solana is working, it's working phenomenally. So. I think the, the haters out there in, in social media and others, you focus on that 1%, but what if you change the frame and you say 99% it's, it's good. And guess what? If they keep getting it better, that's the game changing side to things, right? So, and, and I think a lot of people also miss, uh, you know, we're used to linear thinking, right? And, and again, the exponentiality is super important because, you know, there's the concept of the S-curve that yes, up on the S-curve, you will hit like those flat plateaus and, and sort of dip down in the innovation curve. But if you continue innovating, and that's the beauty about computing technology in particular, but just innovation in general, is that, you know, after that plateau, there is another upside, right? And we could continue going through that. And at some point, you hit this momentum where enough energy and momentum is in the system itself that you ride that exponential upswing for a long, long time. And we've seen this in the internet economy for the last few decades. 100% right. I'll give you an example from my own um, uh, personal life, right? 20 years ago, in the dot-com 99 bubble, I invest, invested what was a very princely sum to me, $4,000 in the stock market. I did some options, which I had no idea about, and I lost all my money. And it took me 10, 12 years to get back into the stock market. The, the worst lesson one can learn, right? Um, so the, the other lesson to learn from the internet, you know, dot-com bubble, great tech, overshot, came down, adjusted, and then guess what happened after 2000, 2001? Over 20 years, it was like internet, internet everywhere. 
So the same, I think, is repeating. And again, this is not financial advice. This is my forecast. It could be wrong. Call me up in a couple of years and laugh at me if I'm wrong. I'm confident that this is scaling like this, like at an exponential pattern. When you scale like that, what happens is that you have up sharp ups and sharp downs. You overshoot, and then you have to correct. That's what markets are. If you think about what markets do, they do price discovery. So they overshoot with exuberance. You have all the tourists coming into crypto, right? That don't understand a lot, and they're just in it for the money. Then it, it adjusts. And this is where, if you, you want to use some uh, Wall Street language, right? Bulls like me build in bear markets. So this is the time where you hunker down. Tourists are gone. The noise is gone. Whether it's a one-month uh, winter, six months, a year, two years, I'm 100% sure we're going to come out of this swinging. And what, what's going to happen, and again, I'm confident about this forecast, is that use cases are going to come, and they're going to drive adoption. So NFTs, right, which is digital art, was a massive use case. And it basically created this vacuum and sucking action of bringing a lot more people into it. This um, decentralized finance is another example. So as these use cases come up, guess what? The S-curve part comes in and you come out swinging. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm not worried about this that downturn at all. Um, and for the people that bought high because of FOMO, right? And they're like, oh, I got to get in. I got to get in. I would highly encourage you to just wait it out. But the trick there is that start investing amounts that you could lose so that if you lose it, it's not a big deal. And then just hang in and hang in long. I've seen, you know, four or five drops of 80%. It went down from 19,000 to 2000. It's gone down from 65,000 to 30,000 right now. Part of the, part of the journey. Yeah. And I think the other day it was funny. Um, you know, I think Jeff Bezos put out a tweet about, I think it was business speak or some other magazine calling into question his bet on AWS at that time and how he should focus on his store. Um, and not AWS. And, you know, if you go back at that point in time, you will see big gyrations in Amazon's valuation at that point, right? I remember in 2007, eight, people would say, well, this country keeps making, a company keeps making losses. Like it's not a great investment. There was a big bear case for Amazon at that point in time. Um, and if you held through those volatility and continue to cost average your way in into what is a great company still, um, it would have been amazing returns, right? And I think that's very important. I think people miss in the FOMO, uh, in any financial instrument that they invest in with the FOMO, that, you know, you get in and then if it goes down, you get out of it because it's the end of the world. And I think if you have discipline and, and long-term horizon, um, then a lot of this stuff just doesn't, you know, it, it's it's more like, okay, it's volatility. Volatility, in my view, also, especially as a younger person, is great because that's the only way to, to have outsized returns to volatile times. If it's consistent linear, then it's not going to make anybody rich in terms of their long-term horizon. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think with, with Amazon, it's a, it's a great example of a product that people started using. And if you had packages coming from Amazon 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, if you weren't investing in Amazon stock, then you were doing it wrong. And that's my other philosophy in investing. If when you became a Netflix subscriber, then just buy Netflix stock. And I see a lot of that happening in the crypto world, right? That if you're into NFTs and you're you know trading on Ethereum and you know, you're doing DeFi and you're doing it on some other network, then just start investing wherever you're comfortable with. Um, and this, the, again, don't worry about the volatility. It's just, that's just a, it's a feature, not a bug. So moving on to sort of, you know, where the ecosystem is headed, um, you were part of a group that, you know, we all collaborated on the Web3 potential for Pakistan, initial very early level assessment of the fact that, hey, we should be thinking about this as an opportunity. There's a lot of interest about Web3 and crypto in particular in Pakistan. I know a lot of people doing interesting stuff. Um, in the country, the issues around regulation still exist in terms of the on-ramp and off-ramps to the traditional financial ecosystem. But to those of uh, the listeners who are in Pakistan who are interested in this space, like how do how do Pakistanis take advantage of this of this opportunity? And what what do you see happening where perhaps Pakistan as a country, as a young country, as a country with a lot of technical talent, um, how can it take advantage of this opportunity in terms of where we are today? So I'll start with the micro and then kind of work my way to the, the macro. Um, on the micro side, you know, don't let the haters um, persuade you. 
you know, it's as humans, you know, we, we think about the worst, we think about the bad that happened in the last year, but there's a lot good that's happened. If you take that view, then just start learning, be open-minded. Like for me, as an example, I'm not a particularly open-minded, but I have to convince myself. So a year and a half ago, when somebody was saying, Hey, would you buy digital art? I'm like, why the hell would I buy digital art? It could be copied and pasted. There could be a hundred exact same replicas, but why would, so then slowly I kept my mind open and you understood that, Hey, the person who owns the Mona Lisa owns the Mona Lisa. And there's a thousands and millions of replicas are replicas. So the same concept that applies in the physical world that you want, people want ownership. Why wouldn't apply in the digital? So on the micro individually, how you could benefit, keep an open mind, learn. I do all my learning on YouTube, watch these videos. And some of these videos are complicated. Don't give up, keep watching. Like I'm like, like staking was a concept that I couldn't get. I had to watch the same video five times. And then eventually you're like, oh, wow, that's game changing. And so that's what I would tell you to do on the micro, keep learning, invest a little where your money goes, the mind follows, um, and you're forced to kind of read up on it. So I'll tell doorman in New York, you know, buy a hundred dollars of Bitcoin. If you lose a hundred dollars, not a big deal. In Pakistan, Hazara pick a little Bitcoin, right? Start somewhere. The macro, and that was a work, you know, that we did together. Uh, loved that exercise. Loved collaborating with you. The model we built is an exponential model, right? Um, next door in India, you have these big companies like Tata, Infosys, and Wipro that have hundreds of thousands of people working in digital and non-digital areas, right? And they took advantage of Web One and Web Two effectively. Why, with the same human capital that they have, like we have, why can't we do the same thing? We have you know, 200 plus million people. Just think of that as just human capital. We don't have oil. We may not have a lot of other natural resources, but we have a lot of human capital. So if we can divert that human capital into Web3 and broadly into technology, it's not even about crypto and Web3, right? It's about getting them into tech. Then there's this massive demand for digital talent. Like I spent two days at a conference here in New York, and that's a big theme. People want to hire people. And so there's this demand for program. And by the way, it's not just technical. People are like, oh, your technology is not No, 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 no. You have the like technology jobs where like coding and programming, but then you've got like design jobs or UX jobs. And there's other non-technical jobs in this area that you can easily get into, right? And so for me, the macro view, and if, if you know the government can figure this out with academia, it's like a multi-pronged strategy, right? Government, state bank, academia, professional organizations. They kind of get together, you know, create a marshal plan for us, right? Whatever you want to label it, right? Like this thing around how you marshal these resources. And, and the model is very simple. If you can get just simply a hundred engineers out, right? Per year, and you increase it by 50%. So every year you add 50% more. Year one is hundred en- engineers or designers in web three, then 150, then 225, so and so forth. I mean, that's anywhere between a hundred to $300 billion opportunity for Pakistan over 20 years. And, you know, um, if we're focused on, you know, tobacco tax rates, right. Versus, you know, this, where do you want to, where do you want to focus your attention? Right. And this is the place that you would want to focus your attention. And so I'm hoping, you know, government officials are listening and they think about how they can be a lot more receptive and you can tackle Pakistan's macroeconomic issues that we're, we faced. We, we're currently fake, fa- facing right now. It's very acute, but we faced all along 20, 30 years. This can be tackled by building out this, this massive platform in a concerted way and taking a multi like, like decade view, right? So this isn't about, you know, Insafians and Noonies or whatever, right? This is about Pakistan and making it better for Pakistanis, right? And I think we can all hopefully agree on that. We'll see what the trolls will say on that one. <laughs> yeah, I think that the line we used, right, was that have a bias towards innovation and entrepreneurship. That That's what's needed. And I think two things that I particularly like about having a sort of a forward-looking approach on technology writ large, right, is that, you know, you have median age of Pakistan is 23. Um, these are digitally native people who are on their phones, on social media, TikTok, they're consuming content. The entire global content economy alone is changing, right? So if you start even training, not just technical talent, but designers, UX, you know, even 
people who know Final Cut Pro and can produce sort of, you know, uh, you know, webinars. final webinars and things like that. That's a lot of money on the table as well, right? And all you need is to provide the on-ramp, which is broadband connectivity and laptops, essentially, right? And the on-ramps for the financial system is that when that dollar, whether it's in a crypto coin, whether it is in USD, uh, whatever that might be, it comes into the economy and there is a way for that talent to declare it and say, here's my income easily. And here's me spending that money in Pakistan makes it easy. And I think that in and of itself leads to a major shift, right? And the, the sort of thing that I've been thinking about as an unintended consequence of that policy will be that to be good in terms of the emerging internet economy, you have to have critical thinking skills um, and you have to be creative. And I think those critical thinking skills, if you start with even 100 engineers who are capable of doing that or talent, let's call it, because they don't even have to be engineers, um, it just causes a seismic shift in how your society operates, right? Because we have a lot of problems we need solutions for, and the best way to do it is to have people who are critical thinkers um, and can do that. So not only is it an economic opportunity, it's a societal opportunity in terms of empowering your people. And I think the government doesn't need to do much except provide those on and off ramps, right? People, Pakistanis are hustlers, they'll figure that stuff out. I know so many people who have gone on Coursera and taught themselves Python and are on Fiverr as Python developers, right? The state had nothing to do with this except provide them with electricity and internet. And I think that's really the opportunity here. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's two things I think about a lot. We, as, as humans generally, and then Pakistani specifically, we have to be focused on building, right? And not the negativity, right? That comes with like trolling and like, oh, yeah, galata, wo galata, blah, blah. Is it like, if you're focusing 80% of your attention on building stuff, trust me, it's, it's gonna go somewhere. And the second part is that you have to be positive. Like if you, if you're, if, if, if you hate on something or if, if things are complicated, you're not gonna make progress. Right. If Steve Jobs was like, hey, I can't make a phone that has got a flat screen, it's got a modem, it's got this, then he would have never made it. So if you think it's possible, you can make it right. So it's 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 basically building in positivity. And then you're right, you know, like it's the, the, the entry level um, requirements to take advantage of this revolution are very, very low. This isn't a steel plant, right? This isn't even a massive financial engineering exercise. Like if you think about what China's progress over the last 30 years or UAE, massive capital, right? This isn't massive capital. You you hit the nail on the head. It's a laptop and internet, right? And and, and that's it. And then you get you get going. Um, and a shameless plug here for the work we're doing, which is around the Institute of Emerging Careers. Um, we are basically doing our bit, again, building and being positive that here we're going to train people up. And we're giving full scholarships to people on UX courses, web development courses, and we just added a blockchain course. And we're following an exponential pattern. We went from 40 people in cohort one in July to 100 people in October in cohort two, and in March, cohort three is 250. If we can keep going, well, not, not easy, right? You need a lot of help, a lot of support, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, right? But we've got this exponential pattern. Um, and then the last thought, especially for the bankers who are listening and central bankers, right? This was a little bit of an aha moment for me at this conference over the last two days. Blockchain actually gives you more transparency because you can see all the transactions of a wallet. So you can see, hey, this person's been transacting like a normal person. This has been transacting like a Nigerian prince, right? And you can actually see that and it's actually better controls. And so it's like, you know, it, be a lot more progressive. And if you don't understand this, talk to techies. They'll be able to explain it to you. Right. I mean, I love economics. I was initially an economics major and then I switched to computer science, but you need to have both hats on and it's tech first this time. And, and that traditional thinking of, 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 you know, what most economists have with classically trained economists is not not applicable because that the whole monetary system is changing right in front of us. Yeah, for me, I think the, the, the whole debate around money laundering and illicit finance, um, it, it was super complicated to understand and, and get through because you spoke with the traditional bankers and financial people, right? And they're like, oh, there's so much illicit stuff and drugs smuggling and terror financing and all of that. And then I would talk to the technology people, especially those on privacy. And this was the irony here was that when I spoke with those who looked at things in the internet economy from a privacy first point of view, 
their view was that the emergence of a crypto economy, especially with an overlayer of CBDCs, is actually going to empower the surveillance state, right? Their concern was you know, everything right? And then I, I would talk to these two groups and I was like, well, one of you is wrong, right? Clearly, because if the privacy folks are concerned about the surveillance nanny state and the traditional bankers are saying all sorts of shady stuff is happening here, I'm like, those two things don't add up. And in fact, if you look at, you know, increasingly the way CBDCs are being structured or being debated, the things, for example, the FBI was able to get access to Bitcoin stolen, um, you know, through and, and, and uh, the, the things that happened a few months ago, it just shows that the capabilities are there, right? I think the mistake to make here would be for a state, any state, not just Pakistan, to say everybody who touches uh, with the crypto economy is a money launderer or a terrorist or in illicit finance. That then means that your law enforcement agency treats you and I and another terrorist the same way, meaning they're looking at three people in a universe, not just one. Um, whereas if you provide on and off ramps, 80 to 90% of the people, I would argue 95 plus percent of the people would just engage with this economy just as normal human beings. And then law enforcement can focus at the five, seven, eight percent that's left who are doing nefarious things. And nefarious things happen in the cash economy in any case. So, you know, th that's been my pushback on that. Yeah, I, I'll tell you this whole thing about hey, wrong activity happens on blockchain, you know, whether it's terrorist financing and blah, 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 money laundering, right, is actually been debunked. And I really don't understand where this narrative comes from. You Google it. There's a great report by Chain Analysis, right, that shows it compares illicit activity happening here versus banking. And it's not materially more or less, right? Banking may be galat kaam ho People are sending money for terrorists or people are money laundering and banking infrastructure, you know, from different banks. So all of that's happening. So it's kind of like saying, hey, you know, if something bad happens, the whole thing is bad. And that's where you can't paint the whole thing with the same brush. I think the transaction count is less than 1%. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it's not that high. And there's like some networks like, you know, uh, Monero, which are highly, highly private and wrong stuff can happen there. I, I Let me rephrase. It's super, super private. So you have to be very careful on how you would use that tech because I'm, I'm not even you know fully into it right now. So if you think about it from a Pakistan perspective, control the on-ramps and off-ramps like you do with the banks. But within it, your Bitcoin or Ethereum, that's okay. And you it's actually way better. So I, I think hey, people who basically talk about, hey, this is, you know, you know, drug dealers are using this, I they're really they don't understand the full picture, to be very frank. They just they don't get it. Yeah, and I think Pakistan has a digital identity system, right? And it's a centralized, disconnected to Nadra, and there you go. So now think of the concept, right? If I was gonna take you into a visual, right? Like think of these, like with the word block, right? Blockchain. These are blocks that are being formed. Ledgers, like Kata line. If you link it with your national identity card, so you have a trail of transactions. You actually know what's happening. And it's actually could be a good thing. And it has to be smart regulation, right? And having spent time on Wall Street, knowing that humans are incentivized to do bad. That's just nature. It's like, wait, uh, cops and robbers game has been going on for, since you know humans were here and it's going to go on till humans are going to be here right you're never going to finish this right that when the government catches up the robbers go up again and so you constantly have this chase so you have to have smart regulation that keeps evolving and that's how the us took some proactive steps and made their financial system stronger and you continue to pull that you know thread over the next you know few decades from your perspective, I like the last couple of questions, um, you know, obviously the U.S. is also figuring out policy. Singapore has its own sort of approach to this. The Emiratis are going in a totally different direction. What are some jurisdictions that you're looking at and saying, you know what, they're exciting places with with a forward looking approach where perhaps they're they're trying to make a real bid in terms of disrupting the ecosystem? Yeah. So, so a couple of thoughts before I answer that direct question. Right. One is that this is a brand new asset class. And what, you know, so some of the people who aren't familiar with this, let me explain that. When you have commodities like gold, you have a regulatory body in the US that basically regulates commodities. So it's called CFTC. When it comes to currency, you have a regulatory body called the OCC. The Federal Reserve is the central bank. Then you've got the OCC that takes another OCC, which takes our options. You have a bunch of these regulatory bodies that are regulating various asset classes. So there is, I think, a need to create a digital assets regulatory body. 
because not all of it's currency, like cryptocurrency. There's so there's gaming going on. There's organizational work going on here. Um, and so you need a forward thinking kind of macro level regulatory body to do this. But here's the challenge, and that's the second thought, and then I'll answer your question, is that the space is moving so fast that how will regulators keep up? And I think that's going to be an interesting um, thought process because reg regulators also are aircraft carriers, right? They're not, they don't move that fast. How do you give enough room for people to hang themselves on? So let's I say- so, Sorry to interrupt you here, there's a stream of consciousness thought. If you look at the development of regulation, particularly in the United States around the banking system, there is a long period of time before the regulation even comes because you had the wild, wild west of American banking. You read it early years of this country's independence through maybe the, the initial sort of savings and loans type scandals that would happen. Um, there was no idea. In fact, philosophically, the founding fathers of America in one sort of segment were against anything like a federal reserve or a federal government controlling currency, for example, even. So your examples, like American history is littered with financial system gone wrong. Glass-Steagall, I think, was in the 30s. You had the SNL crisis in the 80s. You had Sarbanes-Oxley in the early 2000s coming out of WorldCom and Enron accounting scandals. Out of 2008, you had the OCC heightened standard because of the financials. And these are just four periods that I'm mentioning right off the top of my head in the last 80 years. And America's innovation happened because of its financial prowess, right? So it enabled financial engineering to enable the capitalism to grow. But again, use that analogy that I was saying, which was you give enough room, people hang themselves, it blows up. When that blow up happens, you have to make sure it's controlled. Like SNL hurt a lot of people, right? 2008 hurt a lot of people. So can you reduce the blow ups? They'll happen, but you have protections in place, right? And the same thing can happen with crypto. Give people room. Like the stable coin fiasco, smart people have been calling for you know, regulation on stable coins for, forever. For sure, do it. They, they do this thing called stress testing on Wall Street to understand that, hey, in the event of a stress, can the bank survive? Okay, bring that exact regulatory regime to these crypto projects. Stress test the crypto so a Luna type thing doesn't happen again. But this is that forward thinking, you know, like, and I don't know if all the regulators get it, right? And, and I, I honestly think this is not a economics or monetary first, right? It's a tech first innovation. And you have to let some of the techies drive some of this conversation, it's hard, right? You, you know <laughs> that, that people have very strong points of views, but this is where if you're more progressive in terms of tech, you're gonna reap the benefits, right? And this ties into answering your question, like which countries are forward looking? What are they doing? Um, you know, the UAE is in a little bit of a race, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are playing a little bit of a game, right? They're trying to be more progressive to attract people to be headquartered in their spaces, right? Same thing with Singapore. Those are the forward looking places, right? Uh, like in the US, it's kind of mixed. You have uh, crypto cities popping up like Miami, right? Wyoming's doing some interesting work. And I think that race happens. And I don't think it's impactful one way or the other. Just it is what it is. You will be domiciled where you're domiciled. And that's going to change. But again, the macro view is that it's this, right? So that's the focus. Yeah, I think just on your tech first point, I think, again, from a narrow Pakistani perspective, again, if you take a longer term horizon of 30, 40 years in terms of where this space is going, how technology is using with macroeconomics and society writ large, right? Um, it is also important to develop early education curriculum that is multidisciplinary, right? So you need to teach people programming and technology skills, but you also need to teach them philosophy and, and, and things around biology and biological systems, et cetera, because all of those things are going to inform the, the one thing I don't like, and I think it's a legitimate criticism of tech bros, sort of the stereotype of the tech bro, right? Is that they think technology is a solution to everything. And it's a very libertarian view that is disconnected from thousands of years of human learning that has happened and, and that is there for which we can we should draw upon from, right? And I think again for a young country like Pakistan, if you can crack that code of multidisciplinary education you can transform society because it is everyone is pretty much regardless of where you are in this in, in the world you're all in the same place and you can set up your talent to succeed in this and and just leapfrog ahead yeah so so a couple of thoughts right the multidisciplinary point is spot on 
there is this burgeoning field of tokenomics and that brings technology and economics together if the people who come from their specific area where they're blinders they're not going to get this so if you're an economist trained in whatever austrian school whatever you're going to look at it your way if you're a tech you're going to look at it your if you bring it all together there's there's stuff happening here that we're not going to get into today but that is going to unleash a crazy amount of value whatever capitalism did in the last 100 years i think in the next 20 30 years tokenomics is going to 10 20x whatever capitalism is that's how big this is going to be i think the point about tech pros is completely legit people who think technology is the answer or it's technology only don't get it my point was more around technology first and this is something that now over a 25 odd year career i've shifted my thinking I grew up in a very, what it was called a waterfall world. You would basically define the requirements, then you would design it, build it, and two years later, your technology would be built. And this was kind of waterfall. Like this is how you would build a steel plant, right? Design, build, then operate, right? Multi-years. Technology has shifted to where it's agile. You try stuff, and if it works, great. We try stuff for one, two weeks, and you keep, keep shipping. So just a little bit on that narrative shift, right? When you build a house, you tell the architect, yeah, mujhe, I need five bedrooms, five bathrooms, blah, 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 blah. And then, then the architect goes, but what if you said, hey, what technology can I use to build a house? Then you suddenly get into prefab, right? And, you know, prefabricated homes. So now this house is going to cost me, you know, $100,000, right? But if I went prefab and I went tech first, because the technology enabled it to be prefab, my cost would be half. So that's the shift in thinking I'm now doing in terms of a lot of my own ventures and even my own thinking for Pakistan. Okay, come at things tech first and then layer in everything else because technology is going to allow you to go exponential. But if you go economics first or you go manufacturing first or you go whatever first, you're not going to unleash the true power of tech. And I think that's needed to kind of get Pakistan into that exponential path. And, you know, we can do this. It's not that hard. Like I, I'm like, I'm an optimist, right? Mostly. I think there's a, a legit chance that we should take a whack at this. And over a 10, 20 year period, we can really, really shift, um, you know, the economic environment in Pakistan through this. Yeah. I think the tech first, that's a very, solid way of explaining this because as you were talking about this, I was just thinking about the Pakistani challenge in agriculture and climate change, right? We are using 150 year old irrigation technology. Um, and if you went at your agricultural sector from a food security lens, um, non-tech first, you're going to struggle because the scale of the problem is so high. But if you went tech first and said, okay, what's the most efficient agricultural country in the world? It's the Netherlands. Can we copy their technology? Um, Netherlands produces more food than Pakistan and it's a fraction of the size. Um, you solve a huge problem. In fact, you will create surplus output that can allow you to export food process, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Incomes go up because productivity goes up. And then the economic argument comes in, right? Because you saw a technological solution to the vast scale of the problem that you currently have. So I think that's a very, th thank you for putting it that way. That's a very interesting way to look at problems. Um, the other corollary to that is this concept around experimentation. So Jeff Bezos has a saying that if you double your experiments, you double your inventiveness. So Ozair, think about like the rest of the year, right? Let's say seven months left. Ozair is going to do, let's say two, three experiments and you're going to learn. But if you double your experiments, think about all the learning. So if you think about Pakistan as a macro, right? Is there a way for us to kind of unleash these massive experiments? Maybe this idea that I have is wrong. It's okay. But if we unleash a hundred experiments and we keep layering in more experiments on tech, right? As, as a society, we're going to be way smarter than where we are. So your Netherlands example is great. Okay, let's, let's experiment with it somewhere. If it works, great. If it doesn't, take the learnings, keep experimenting. And that's how exponential patterns are found, right? That mythical product market fit, all of those stuff. That's how it's all about experimentation. That's where you have to ignore the haters. Yeah, we got it wrong. Yeah, Terra Luna collapsed. Yeah, this happened. Okay, but look at everything else that's going to happen. Focus on the positives, right? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that that positivity is especially needed in a place like Pakistan, where the challenges are just so, you know, so stark. And, and if you want to disrupt that, then you have to be an optimist and, and a perpetual optimist at that point. Um, Salah, this has been a great conversation. Before I let you go, um, you mentioned some videos, you said you watch a lot of YouTube. So what are 
three, four things that you recommend people Google, put it on their YouTube search and watch if they want to learn more about Web3 and, and where we're headed? I would start off with simple, right? Web3 explained simply, crypto explained simply, blockchain explained simply. Start your journey with that. Try to find the videos that are five minutes or less, maybe animated ones. I do that, right? Get the concepts and just have faith, right? Don't get frustrated that, hey, I don't get this. Keep watching it, right? I was giving you the example of staking. There's these like ZK rollups, very complicated concepts, right? For, for someone who's classically trained as a computer scientist, even I don't understand these fully. I have to keep watching them to understand this. And then this, it's all linked to being open-minded, right? If you think that, hey, this is bad, then, you know, there's another famous saying, right? It's, it's a, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you are right. Whether you think you can or you can't, you are right. If Elon Musk thought that he couldn't build an electric car, he wasn't going to build an electric car. And 10 years ago, it was like it was the crazy thought, right? That you would build a car that would not, not only compete, but outcompete a gasoline powered or oil, you know, fuel powered, right? But Elon Musk thought he could and he did. And I think that frame of thinking needs to like shift for people and that building happens, right? Um, the other thing I like is, you know, perfection's enemy of progress. Just jump in. Even if you're confused about this, take like a hundred dollars, take a hazard rupee and invest it today. And then you know, you go from there. Yeah, I think your, your mind goes where the money goes, right? So if you have a little bit left, you're going to follow. The Tesla example, again, last point on this before we close, yeah, it's so important because the initial electric vehicles were tried out in the early 20th century. They failed massively, right? Just because the efficiency wasn't there. So Musk and others could have looked at that example and said, you know what, we've been there, done that, doesn't work, move on, this is a failed thing. Wouldn't have, you know, they would have done something else. But yeah, it, it's the it, that S-curve again. We had a hundred year, almost a hundred year sort of plateau in the S-curve of electrification and mobility didn't go anywhere. And then boom, all of a sudden, everybody from Ford to GM to Geely in China is investing in uh, electric mobility because we have hit the innovation peak now. And, and, and it's, it's, it's full on full throttle competition at this point. Yeah, exactly. So thank you so much for taking out the time. This was fascinating. We'll be in touch. Um, and again, uh, you know, these are exciting times, ups and downs come, but, uh, you know, at least you and I both agree that if you're at least not following this segment, you're missing out on what is an ongoing technological revolution, whether it goes boom or bust remains to be seen. But I think either way, the innovation, the technological learnings that come out of this movement are going to power the world in the future. And I think people should follow it. So thank you for enlightening us with your views on this. Hey, it was a pleasure. Um, thank you for having me.